let's let's pray before we get started here. Well, Father, I thank you for uh, for this day, for these people, and for your word. We just pray now that uh, that all of this will honor you. That everything uh, that I do and say and your people as well will be honoring to you. So we give you praise, Father, and thanks. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I looked this up, and according to Barrett's World Christian Encyclopedia, there are more than 33,000 Christian denominations in 238 countries. That's a lot of denominations. (laughs) Even if you allow for some overlap, which this, the way they do this is that one denomination inside one country counts as a separate one. So if you you could have a Cambodian Baptist would be counted as one, uh, and then Baptist somewhere else would be, and so on and so forth. So even if you count for that, that's still a lot of different churches and a lot of different denominations. And so I think it's probably a, a good question in light of the, this huge number of churches that we find all over the world to ask the question, well, is that really what God had in mind for his church? Now, some people probably would say yes because they think that variety is important. Good no- Lord knows we got variety you know, with that many churches. But the argument that they would make could possibly be, well, person A might discover Jesus in a certain type of church <clears throat> that they wouldn't in others because of different worship styles or different preaching styles or different attitudes on what clothing is appropriate to wear, uh, etc. So they would conclude that if having thousands and thousands of denominations is allowing more people to come to faith, then that's good. However, if you read God's book, it's downright impossible to find any reference to anything but a completely unified church. There's no place in the Bible that specifies that there should be a white Methodist church and a black Lutheran church and a Korean Pentecostal church and a Chinese Baptist church. I've looked. It's not there. And and the fact is that all of those single ethnicity churches are the idea and the creation of man, not God. Now, that's not to say that the creation of these churches was necessarily bad or wrong. Single ethnicity churches have become the norm for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they're created for practical reasons, such as a group that shares a common language. And in fact, if you look, the sociologists who study these kinds of things will tell you that for a first-generation immigrant, that's almost a necessity. I mean, they have transplanted from their own country to a brand new country, new culture, and so forth. And so trying to force them into an English-speaking church would just completely, you know, might push them over the edge or whatever. And so there's a legitimate reason why you might have those kinds of people in a church that sort of is um, 
specifically for them and speaks just their language. And it would also probably be very honoring of their customs and culture, which is, what again, what they have brought with them. Sometimes these churches have been created for necessary reasons, such as when blacks were refused entry to white churches. And so they began their own churches and denominations. Sometimes these churches have been created for evangelistic reasons. Now, probably one of the most popular of these evangelistic reasons is something that if you read the literature, you may have even heard the term, it's something called the HUP, H-U-P, which stands for the Homogeneous Unit Principle. Okay, now this was put forth by some church missi missiologists uh, a number of years ago, but it really became sort of the primary factor by which churches were created. And so the thinking goes like this. A, a homogeneous unit is really nothing more than people that have like an ethnic similarity, language similarity, um, maybe educational, vocational, all those kinds of things. So there, there's, there's some common ground if you want to look at it that way. And if you think of that in terms of a church congregation, those types of things tend to be very important in churches. So the premise here is that people like to gather with their own kind, so to speak. And this was all sort of born on the mission field as they were, as they were doing missions. And so they began to interview the missionaries coming back. And it was sort of out of that that this whole idea of church sort of was born. And so the, the thing is that when you go to plant a church, you want to then target the church for your own kind, right? Because that's what's going to most naturally draw people in. Problem, though, is that Christ's message was that we're supposed to accept all people into one tribe. And that message is sometimes lost on many Christians. And because of that, then, this HUP principle continues to have some influence on church planners. In fact, in the material that I got originally when I was beginning the process of planting this church um, contained a, a language, I didn't realize it at the time, but it contained language that sort of backed this up. Okay, so, I mean, and, and that's not... I don't want to cast any kind of uh, bad image on the vineyard or anybody else. This was a very accepted practice, and there was no racial overtone to it at all. They would have told the same thing if I had been black or Korean or whatever. They would have said, you should go and appeal to your tribe. All right? But the thing is, despite all of these good intentions and all of these valid reasons and so on and so forth, this kind of church just does not express what God would have it to be. And you only have to read scripture to understand that. And that's where we come in. <clears throat> now, um, it's sort of, I didn't even realize this when I <coughs> scheduled this because it kind of, sort of snuck up on me, but tomorrow will be our seventh birthday as a 
a church body meeting in public. We started actually about eight years ago, and, uh, but then we didn't have our first public gathering until May the 4th, 2008. And so here we are on uh, the eve of our eighth year. And so I think as part of that, at least as those of you that have been on this journey with us for a majority of the time, you know, because I've talked about it, that God put in my heart years ago that w this should be a multi-ethnic congregation. Now, I, I didn't have a clue about how to do that. I just figured, like most people do, that you put a sign out front that says, everybody welcome, and that means everybody. But it doesn't work that way. The truth about fostering this type of a church, that attitude is about as far from effective as you can get. Multi-ethnic churches are infinitely more complex than simply putting a sign out that says everybody welcome. So I made finding out about these kinds of churches the basis of my doctoral dissertation. Primarily so that I would know how to do this. And so, as a result of the studies that I've undertaken, we have made a few changes. Now, some of them are apparent. You can see up on the wall that sort of part of the Harmony Vineyard Way specifically involves diversity in wanting to have a diverse congregation. Now, that's important. Why? Because when people of different ethnicities come in, they see that we're being very intentional about that and we, we, have a, we believe in it enough that we put it up on the wall and on our website and, and everywhere that, uh, that we can to sort of demonstrate that. Um, we have people of different ethnicities on our board, which is another thing that is important to do because if you don't share the leadership of an organization across all of those ethnic lines, then you're, what you're really saying is, well, you're, you're welcome here, but you're not welcome enough to really participate in the life of the church at all levels. So we have done some things so far. And so today we're going to begin to take another step. And this series of sermons that I'm going to be doing during uh, most of the month of May is going to be called Lessons in Unity. <clears throat> And I have come to understand through these seven years and, and talking with some of you and, and getting feedback on certain things, as well as the research that I've done, that not everybody here is as fully prepared and as fully on board with this as I am. Just kind of natural. So the whole focus uh, of this series and of the uh, series of lessons that I'll be teaching on Wednesday nights for the next three Wednesdays are going to help all of us, I hope, become more aware that it is God's desire and God's heart to have his church unified. And then the Wednesday night sermons are going to focus on, or sermons, lessons really, it's more of a teaching are going to focus on some areas within uh, other aspects of a multi-ethnic church. So, for example, this coming Wednesday, we're going to talk about really a definition 
of a multi-ethnic church and what that looks like and why is it important outside of the fact that God really calls us to it. We're going to do the next session on uh, cross-cultural interaction. So, okay, so somebody comes in here and they're from Korea, let's say. Well, there's some, they're not necessarily, the two cultures don't necessarily mesh in every way. There are certain things that you may not want to say or do that are completely innocent in this culture, but can mean some very unpleasant things. <laughs> and if, if you'll come to the class, I've got a whole list of those up front where we're going to try and guess if you can figure out these various things that if you were to do this in this culture, what is it, a good thing or a bad thing? You know, what does that mean? And then finally, <clears throat> we're going to have, on the last Wednesday, a sacred conversation on race. And one of the things that has come across loud and clear in all the work that I have done is that in many, many cases, race is the elephant in the pew in a church. It's the one thing that no one, everybody sees, everybody notices, but nobody wants to talk about. You've heard of the elephant in the room. Well, we just adopted the same saying for church. And so we're going to set this up so that we have an opportunity to kind of look at that and, and maybe understand why that is and participate in a discussion about it to start to get some of these things and talk about them, because that's how we make them better, is by having that kind of interaction. Now, as I said last week, I really, really uh, would hope you would attend. Like I said, I need <clears throat> at least 20 people to be here and to uh, complete a survey at the end to make this a statistically significant event for, uh, for this project. And in fact, uh, I'm going to ask you to uh, fill out a survey for each sermon. Now, they're very short. The first four questions are really just identifiers, age, gender, uh, race, and educational background. And that'll be the same on all of them. And then it's like three or four questions after that. So it shouldn't take a lot of time. I'm going to email the ones for the messages out immediately following the... Uh, sermon so if you are if you want to get this and you are not receiving emails from us let me know I'll, I actually ask you would fill out one of these so that we have your email address and you'll get it uh, and, and can fill it out and did I mention that I'm bringing dessert on Wednesday What's it gonna be? what do you want <laughs> what Pie? All right. <laughs> Catherine's in for pie. What have you, you? You picky at all? You don't care? Men ice cream. All right, ice cream and pie. We can do that. All right. And so, in part one of this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Trinity. And as you probably know, the word Trinity is not in Scripture anywhere. The Trinity is the way that the early church began referring to this three persons in one God as they studied the word and as they looked for ways to make sense of what they were reading. And so what emerged from this was church doctrine. And, and 
Church doctrine kind of sounds like a very fancy formal thing. It's really nothing more than a set of beliefs. It's, you know, if we say this is our doctrine, it's saying well, this is what we believe. And so the doctrine of the Trinity states that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God and that there is one God. And the doctrine of the Trinity is really one of the most important in the entire Christian faith. Because when we study what the Bible has to say about the Trinity, it gives us some real insight into the one question that is probably at the root of almost all the questions that we ask about faith and, 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 and God. And that is, what is God like in himself? What's he like? And so it's here that we really learn that in his very being, God exists in the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he's one God. And so the scriptures sort of progressively reveal that, um, well, they really reveal in, in sort of a way of the, what the Trinity is. I think I'm behind on this slide. Okay. So in the Old Testament, what we find is that the Trinity is sort of progressively revealed. So we have scriptures like, this one from Genesis that says, and then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So that's a Trinitarian statement or verse that we find in the Old Testament. Another one also from Genesis is 3.22. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So once again, you have the plural. Genesis 11.7, which is actually a scripture we're going to look at next week, uh, that whole story of uh, the Tower of Babel. But this is from that. And so this is God saying, come, let us go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. We have a scripture from Isaiah 6, 8, which says, Then I heard the asking, the Lord asking, who should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I am. I said, here I am, send me. And then finally, and these are just uh, some examples, we have Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. And this was David, King David, speaking in this psalm. And he's talking about the Lord in capital letters, speaking to my Lord, which was David's Lord. And so, once again, a verse that proves that there are there is a multiple that the Godhead exists in multiple um, people, I guess if you want to say it. And if we were to go to the New Testament, this is where we really start to get this, a much more complete look at the Trinity. And so we look first at, at Matthew uh, 3, 16 and 17. So after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. So you see here in one 
occurrence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all present at the same event. Um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, Paul writes, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Again, in, in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, Paul writes, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then finally, a similar verse is found in Ephesians 4, 6. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. So there we see that through the New Testament, we begin to get this increasingly uh, better portrayal of, of the Trinity, and so the reality of the Trinity. But the thing is, that even if after we look at all this and we understand that there is such a thing as a trinity and, and we come to believe in it, it's still really, really hard to understand. If you stop and you try to you know, get some idea of, okay, how can that be? Three different people in one. And, um, so it's one of those things that is really, really hard to comprehend. But even if we don't fully understand how it could be, what we find is that the Trinity really can help us understand a lot of things. And probably one of the things that uh, I found as it relates to what we're talking about is that the Trinity can really serve us as a model of what a multi-ethnic church should look like. And so let's look at that here briefly. So first, the concept of God in relationship with himself is an integral aspect of who he is. Unity is part of God. And so we find that the Trinity gives us this basis for believing that God desires all of his unique people to be in a relationship with one another. Now I've shown you how scripture bears witness to a God who can be understood that way, wouldn't you say? Kind of, we've at least proven that that's a possibility. And we have thousands of years of church history to fall back on as well, where that, that has been the doctrine of the church for a very, very, very long time. But if we look at the actual relationships that are found in the Trinity, we can see how they open us up to a more complete understanding of how humanity was really intended to live and to function. Now, as I was thinking about this and I was working on this, this message, the image that I got that came back to me uh, was the portrayal of the Trinity in William Young's book, The Shack. I don't know how many of you may have read that. It's been a while. Uh, now, the book has a lot of critics. There's not everyone fully on board with some of the theology that's in there, and that's okay. I think you can read things like that and not necessarily agree with everything and still get a lot out of it. And for me what really struck me at a very personal level was how the author portrayed the characteristics of the Godhead. And it, this was where some of the controversy came because the father is portrayed as an African-American woman 
of generous proportions, shall we say. And in fact, I, uh, I recently saw where Octavia Spencer has been signed to play the role of the father in the movie that they're making about, um, about the book. Jesus is presented as a, as a skilled woodworker and a lover of nature. And the Holy Spirit is given the name Sarayu, which means wind, and is depicted as this small Asian lady with this kind of shimmering appearance that makes it really hard to, to look at her unless you're, if you're looking directly at her. You kind of have to see her off to the side to really see what she looks like. And so I was reading this blog by one of the book's collaborators. And one of the questions that was addressed to this blog was about whether or not the book in some way distorts or demeans the Trinity. And in particular, a lot of the people don't like that the Trinity was not portrayed as a hierarchy. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which is the way it's really been taught a lot of the times. And I don't, even if it hasn't been taught, I think we may draw that implication just because of the fact that that's the way it's said. We're kind of linear thinkers, so we think one, two, three, right? Well, here's what the, uh, the, the collaborator, the blogger said. To look at the Trinity as a relationship without the need for command and control is one of the intriguing parts of the story. If they, meaning the Trinity, walk in complete unity, why would a hierarchy be necessary? They live in love and honor each other. While in the flesh, Jesus did walk in obedience to the Father as our example, but elsewhere, Scripture speaks of their complete unity, love, and glory in relating to each other. Different functions need not imply different status. And so to me, this sentence, to live in love and honor each other, is exactly, I think, why I found this portrayal of the Trinity so compelling. It gave me you know, just this wonderful, very tangible way of thinking about this uh, idea that is just normally so very hard to understand. And I think it also gives us this beautiful picture of what the multi-ethnic church should be like. A large black woman, a brawny white woodworker, and a small Asian lady, as different from each other as night and day, and yet able to interact with one another in love and honor. God, God in loving and honoring relationship with himself, serving as a model for us to have a multi-ethnic church family. Secondly, I think the Trinity gives us a basis for believing <clears throat> that God really does desire for all of his people to be in relationship with one another. So not only does it give us this picture of how the church can and should be unified, but it also helps us understand the basis behind it. Now, if you have the fortune, or as some of you would probably describe it, the misfortune of reading books about theology, um, you would find that there's a lot of vocabulary that kind of springs up as a result of people trying to really understand you know, very difficult concepts. And so they, they come up with ways to describe things. 
And one of, the, uh, one of these is applied to those scholars who really study the Trinity and try to understand it and write books about it and, uh, and teach and so forth. And so they use this word to describe one aspect of the Trinity, and it's the word imminent Trinity. Now, imminent really just means existing or operating within or inherent. So it's like kind of a part of. And it's the term that is used to explore, really to an inadequate degree, and explain the internal workings and the interrelationship among the three persons of the Trinity. So if someone is looking at this as a scholar and is trying to, to really understand what that means and what it looks like. And so it really gives us some language, and that's what the author was trying to do. It gives us some language how we can talk about this and to explain what is really a mystery that we can't understand. And so we find that there are some of these statements that sort of describe this concept of an imminent trinity that's found in John's Gospel. And it's where Jesus prayed, and he says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. <clears throat> I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Now in this prayer, Jesus prays that his followers would have the same unity that he and his father had. And what kind of unity was it? Well, he said it was perfect unity. Unity really means the state of being united or joined together as a whole. And if my understanding of perfect is correct, that means that perfect unity could not include any of the imperfect divisions that man has come up with as it relates to the church. Divisions along the lines of race and ethnicity and even denomination. <clears throat> Perfect unity is found in the Trinity. And it's from God's relationship of perfect unity that we can form this basis for believing that God really does desire that all of his unique people be in relationship with one another. Next, we can say that the relationship of the Trinity to itself is first and foremost a relationship of love. And the reason for this is one of <clears throat> the greatest statements in the entire Bible. 1 John 4.8. This verse tells us that whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This means a lot more than just God is loving or that God sometimes loves us. God is love means that God continually gives of himself to others and seeks their benefits. It means that he loves not because he finds the object necessarily worthy of his love, but because it's his nature to love. His love for us depends not on what we are, but on what he is. It really should be no different from us or for us. 
our love for other people should not depend on what or who they are. Our love for other people needs to flow out of what we are. And we are people in whom this God of love has taken up residence. The person who lacks love shows himself to be unchanged at the core of his being by the gospel message. There was eternal love between the persons of the Trinity even before the world was created. And God's love is the ultimate source of any love that Christians are able to display. And so because of the very nature is defined as being love, the Trinity gives us this perfect example of how we are to love everybody else in any kind of a community, but especially in a multi-ethnic family. Finally, the Trinity gives us a model for experiencing the church as a divine community. There was a theologian named Shirley Guthrie, and he rightfully refers to the Trinity as the distinguishing characteristic of Christianity. He says this, Faith in the triune God and lives shaped by faith in this God is what distinguishes Christians from people who do not believe in God at all or from other religious people whose faith and life are shaped by other views of God. And so he says, he goes on to talk about how the, the Trinity gives us this model for unity that he refers to as the divine community. And, the mo- and when this model is adopted by churches, it becomes a place where all types of people can lovingly coexist a place where they can be different without being divided. The church becomes a place of freedom and not division. In regards to this freedom and the absence of differences, Guthrie says the following. In the divine community, there is no above and below, superior and inferior, but only the free society of equals who are different from each other but live together in mutual openness, respect, and self-giving love. So it is in a truly human society of people who are sexually, racially, socially, politically, and religiously different from one another. There are, um, there are a lot of analogies that people have tried to use over the ages to describe the Trinity. As I said, it's this really, really difficult thing to understand. And so we're constantly trying to come up with ways to help us understand it. And so one of the ways that has been put forth is the idea that the Trinity is like water in the sense that water has, can exist in three different states. It can be a solid, it can be a liquid, and it can be gas. And so even though the water changes, it's still... H2O, it still has that chemical makeup. The problem with this analogy is that it sort of denies the distinction of the Godhead and that no one molecule can ever exist simultaneously as all three, which is what the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity says. 
And so it can't exist simultaneously in these three states. And so there's a heresy that was known as modalism that this sort of talks about. People have also said that sometimes the Trinity, or not sometimes, but that the Trinity is like an egg. <coughs> and so you have an egg, and in one egg you have the white, the yolk, and the shell. So you have three things in one item, one. This once again, though, it, divide, uh, it really denies that unity. See, the egg yolk is a very different substance than the egg shell. And the egg is made up of three distinct and unlike parts. <clears throat> so we really can't, it still doesn't really satisfy a description of what this doctrine says. Now some have said that the Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. There are three different cloves that represent the three different persons of the Trinity. But once again, this breaks down because the three clothes are overly distinct and they really can't represent the unity of God. Well, let's try one more. How about a man who is father, husband, and son? He has different roles to different people even though he's the same person in, in all those examples. Well, the problem here breaks down because he cannot simultaneously be father, husband, and son to any one person. In reality, he's changing his role depending upon who the person that he's interacting with is. And so this really doesn't give us any satisfaction either. And so perhaps the best analogy for the Trinity is a time when you experienced a community of love. Maybe a family when it was at its most healthy and loving. Maybe a sports team where people stopped worrying about their own egos and sort of pitched in and pulled for a common goal. Maybe it was a support group or a life group where you felt really cared for in spite of the brokenness that was going on in your life. Maybe it was a music group where you can just get lost in the music. Because to really experience the Trinity is to experience a community of love. Pastor Kevin Miller says that <clears throat> when he thinks of analogies to the Trinity, he thinks of Mike Yearly's apartment. He says, when I came to Wheaton, Illinois, I moved 700 miles away from my family. Back then, there was no email, no instant messages, no cell phones. My college roommate hung out by himself. My first winter, it snowed 90 inches. I felt like I was living in the Arctic. So I was lonely and literally out in the cold. Then a senior guy named Mike Yearly invited me to his apartment for dinner and a Bible study. I got there and the first thing I noticed was that his apartment had real walls made out of drywall, not cinder block painted over too many times. His wife Lynn was cooking a home-cooked meal. I could smell it as soon as I walked in the door. 
and it tasted way better than anything from the college cafeteria. There were other people there too, a guy named Dave and another named Dan, who were all upperclassmen and popular. They would never have spent time with me or even known who I was, but because I'd been invited to Mike's apartment, they talked with me. We all talked and laughed and played games and listened to music and drank coffee and hung out until super late. As I walked home with Dan, I thought, wow, no one's got a huge bloated ego. They just care about each other. The apartment became my home and my sanity. Whenever I had a question or a problem about dating, I would head to Mike's apartment. Whenever I had a question or a problem about my spiritual life, I would head to Mike's apartment. What I found in Mike's apartment was a community of love. What I felt there was a little picture of what Jesus talked about when he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. The Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home within him. To be a Christian is to get an invitation to Mike's apartment. To be a Christian is to be invited into this community of love that we call the Trinity. In the Trinity, you never find one person who's grumpy. You never find one person who is taking love but not giving any out. No one's critical or cynical or jaded. In the Trinity, there's no jealousy, no politics, no power play. In the Trinity, what you look like is never a condition for love and acceptance. Because the Trinity is absent all of the ugly human feelings and emotions that go with life in this world. And so for all of these reasons, the Trinity can and should serve as our model for what being a unified multi-ethnic church family should look like. Amen. All right. Now, what I'm going to do is, uh, at some point here, probably within the next hour, I'll send an email out that'll have a link to a survey. And so if you would just click it. If you don't have email and would like to complete a survey, I have, I think, six hard copies. But you have to do them before you leave. So if you want a hard copy, I'd be happy to give it to you. Um, but you have to complete it. And, and I failed to mention earlier, these are all completely anonymous. There's no names associated with them, no place to even put your name. So uh, uh, you can fill them out in complete anonymity, say exactly what you think, which I hope I'll want to hear. <laughs> but even if I don't, that's okay, because I want you to be honest. And please remember Wednesday night. If you can make it, and if at all possible, please uh, come. We, Sorry? Oh, uh, sev starts at 7 o'clock. Uh, we'll get here at 6.30, and we'll have the 
dessert smorgasbord set up, and uh, we'll, we'll, that'll be across the hall, and then we'll meet in here at, uh, at 7 and get started, and shouldn't be any more than about an hour and a half, I think, depending on questions. So would really appreciate it. So let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for these, your people. Father, may through your miraculous and wonderful ways help us to truly become a family that embraces everybody, regardless of who they are, or what they look like, what sort of car they drive. We just give you praise and thanks, Father. Bless each person as they leave this place. Let them be a light into the world they go into. We give you praise and honor and glory. And we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.